And Lord, as we now come to your word, we remember that your word is sufficient, that it is inerrant, inspired, that it is indeed infallible. And so we trust in your word. And we stand on your promises that are in your word. And we ask, O Lord, that as we study your word today, that you would feed us with your word, that you would nourish us, that you would instruct us, that you would even strengthen us and grow us in Christ's likeness. O Lord, we come as hungry sheep, asking that the Good Shepherd would feed us. We pray that we would hear his voice and that he would guide us and nourish us for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 10 today. 1 Samuel chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 17 to 27. Of course, if you need a Bible, we have several out in the foyer. Uh, We'd love to get one in your hands if you need one. Uh, just raise a hand, and I'm sure Michael would be pl- uh, happy to go out and get one for you if you need one. Uh, but we'll be looking at, uh, again, 1 Samuel chapter 10, uh, looking at verses 17 to 27 today as we continue in our study of First uh, and Second Samuel. Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm beating a dead horse, which actually might not be a dead horse, and which actually, if you study history, you realize that this is a horse that actually keeps coming up again and again. The first sermon I preached in 2021 was a sermon titled, A Biblical Case for Defying Tyranny. Now, I'm sure that you know, you remember very clearly what was going on at the time, the challenges that the culture was facing, the challenges that the church uh, faced in that time frame. And you know, I, I had never, looking back on that sermon, I had never in my life had a desire to preach a sermon like that because I believe, I firmly believe, and to this day I believe, that Christians should be known as people who are happy to comply with or to accommodate uh, the government. Uh, we should be law abiding citizens, right? We, we don't want to be known as rebellious people. We don't want to be known as people who are insurrectionists uh, just for the sake of being insurrectionists. No, the only time that we should be known as, as insurrectionists or as rebels as far as the government is concerned is when the government tries to forbid us from doing what God instructs or if they instruct us to do what God forbids. It's a pretty simple principle. Those are the two times that we have biblical precedence for defying uh, government laws, laws imposed on us by the government. But it was only because our governing authorities were exceeding their authority by mandating that we not do what God has instructed, uh, whether that be gathering, or whether that be singing, or allowing people to freely join us in worshiping the Lord. It was only because our governing authorities were exceeding their authority that that particular sermon was necessary at that particular time. Now the main passage that I focused on in that sermon was Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7. But as I had spent, before that point, as I had spent months and months 
searching the Scriptures, praying, reading books, reading articles about the subject, reading records of people who had experienced similar circumstances in, uh, in previous centuries about this whole subject, what I came to realize is that the Bible is actually filled with guidance on the issue of the church responding to government overreach or tyrannical laws and mandates. And as you study church history, you find that the church has regularly been opposed, the church has regularly been persecuted by the governing authorities, and that there are actually just tons and tons of passages that the church has gone to or appealed to in those times. The point that the church has always made is that the governing authorities are to be subject to God's law. And one of the passages that Christians have appealed to in order to make this point over the centuries, over the millennia, is the passage that we come to today in 1 Samuel. Now you'll recall, to to set the context here in 1 Samuel, you'll recall that the elders of Israel had been concerned that Samuel's two sons were not uh, worthy of replacing Samuel, as Samuel was now in his older age, and it was clear that his sons were not walking in his ways, not walking in the Lord's ways. They didn't know the Lord, and thus they could not faithfully represent the Lord as uh, prophets or as judges as Samuel had throughout his life. So the people, the elders, came to Samuel, and, and rightfully so, concerned about this, and again, rightfully so, but they were doing it in the wrong way. The way that they responded to the situation was still entirely wrong, because rather than praying to the Lord for guidance, rather than going to Samuel and asking him as their spiritual leader for counsel or advice, they went to Samuel with a demand, appoint for us a king to be like all the nations. The fact that the Israelites wanted to have a king, an earthly king, a mortal king, like all the other nations around them had, was ultimately just an outworking of their inward rejection of God. And God was willing to give Israel exactly what they asked for, exactly what they had their hearts set on. Not because he thought they wanted something good. No, to the contrary. He recognized that they wanted something evil, something bad, but he was going to use this as a means of disciplining them by giving them what exactly they were asking for, all as a means of showing them the foolishness of their desires so that they would return to him. So God had appointed Saul to be king. And so far in 1 Samuel, uh, this appointing has only been private. In fact, it was very private. It took place only between Samuel and Saul. It's something that only they know about to our knowledge. Uh, But when Saul got home and he was asked by his uncle about his encounter with the prophet Samuel, you'll recall that he only reported the conversation he had with Samuel about the whereabouts of his father's donkeys, which had been lost. But the time came shortly after that when Saul would publicly be installed and coronated as Israel's new king, as their first human mortal king. That's what we're going to see in the passage that we come to today. But we're also going to see what kind of man Saul really was. How completely 
unqualified, how completely unfit he was to fill the office of king in Israel. And we'll see that despite the fact that the previous chapter and a half has really been filled with one miracle after another, right before Saul's eyes, all, all very clear evidence that God was working all things out, all relating to encounters that would lead to him being appointed as king, Saul was nevertheless an unchanged man. While he should have been encouraged by God having selected him, knowing that God was with him, the Spirit of God had come upon him, you'll remember, instead, he was cowardly. Instead, he remained a very cowardly man. But in establishing this new monarchy, the question is, whose rules would they go by? Who would write the rules? So the point of this passage is that no matter who leads a nation, God is still the sovereign king. God would discipline his people by giving them this king, all as a means of disciplining them, and bringing them back to himself. And make no mistake about it, King Saul was a disciplinary tool in God's hand with God's people. Earthly leaders very often are. That's why John Calvin once noted that, quote, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers, end quote. And my thought on that is, don't we know it? Don't we know it? And that's exactly why Saul was selected to serve as king of Israel. So soon after his initial encounter with Saul, Samuel called the tribes of Israel to be assembled together. That's what we read about in uh, verses 17 to 19 as we turn to God's Word. Let's look at verses 17 to 19. It says, Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes, and by your clans. So the coronation of Saul takes place in a location called Mizpah. Now that place actually should be familiar to us at this point. We've seen something happen there before. You might remember back in chapter 7, Samuel gathered the tribes together at Mizpah in order to lead them in truly repenting for their sin before the Lord. It was then at Mizpah that God gave the Israelites victory over the Philistines in the midst of their repentance and their willingness to put their trust for deliverance, to put their trust for salvation from the Philistines in God rather than in men and rather than in some inanimate object like the Ark of God as they, priorly, uh, as they had prior to that point. But I have to believe that the reason that Samuel gathers them here The reason that Samuel gathers them at this location called Mizpah here in chapter 10 is because he hopes to once again see them repent before the Lord as a nation. Perhaps he had hoped that this location would stir a memory of 
that one time that we read about back in chapter 7, the time that he left a message with them uh, and as he gathered with them, the message being that the Lord has helped us thus far. It was a message, you'll remember, that he set a monument of stone for, that he had hoped that the, the generations to follow would be able to look at and remember this message, thus far the Lord has helped us. It was the message that Israel needed to remember on this day. That, that monument, the, the, the pillar of stones that he made there, it was still there probably. But they weren't reminded of it. They had apparently no recollection of that day. Nothing happened. The idea that, that, that Samuel was hoping to, to lead the, the Israelites to was, was repenting as a nation is underscored by the fact that he just openly and very clearly, straightforwardly rebukes them for their having rejected Yahweh as their king. That's not something that you'd expect to see at the coronation ceremony of a king, would you? If you watch the coronation ceremony of a, of a, a royal person being installed into their, their office, you see that it's filled with, it's kind of a snooze fest, right? It's something that you can sleep through most of it. You get these boring, monotone speeches. You get people applauding when they're supposed to. You get some enthusiasm about the political future of the country, but no, Samuel isn't there for the pleasantries. He's not there to be a nice guy. He's a prophet. And thus he's there to speak on God's behalf to God's people. And he uses this occasion not as a time for pleasantries, but as a time to openly rebuke the people, to warn them and to scorn them for their apostasy. The rebuke begins in verse 18 as Samuel reminds them of the way that God had demonstrated not only his faithfulness to Israel in the past and setting them free from slavery to Egypt, but that God had always done that for them. And he alone was the one who was powerful enough to do that. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, God tells Israel through Samuel, and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. It wasn't just the Egyptians that had oppressed Israel. No, all these other nations had tried to oppress Israel as well. Egypt, of course, was a great country. They were a mighty army under Pharaoh. Uh, they perhaps even had the greatest military in the world at that time. But they were no match for God. God alone could set them free. God alone had the power to do that. And God did do that. He delivered them. And God and only God could guarantee such deliverance from oppressing forces, not only then, but moving forward as well. Not only, again, had they been oppressed as slaves in Egypt, but we saw in the book of Judges that Israel was constantly being oppressed by the people of the land, being oppressed by the Moabites, being oppressed by the Ammonites. Now they're being oppressed by the Philistines. And of every instance of oppression since God had delivered them, delivered them from Egypt, God says to them, I delivered you. Now you realize, I hope, that, that Israel actually didn't have to be oppressed. Why were they oppressed? It's because they refused to completely blend in and be absorbed into the surrounding nations. They were holy that is, they were set apart by God. They were different from the nations around them. And they were instructed to reject the false idols and the gods of the nations around them. 
We had somebody tell me this morning that an archaeologist who dug up parts of ancient Israel observed that they were clearly a culture that worshipped many, many gods. They were a polytheistic culture. Bearing testimony to the fact that they really did worship, at times, the gods of the culture. But then, they'd realize the foolishness of it, and God would bring them back to them, and once again, they would refuse to worship the gods of the culture. And that was really the big kicker. That's, that would be the times that they would have the most troubles, was when they were the most faithful to God. Funny how that works. Because God's people today are also set apart from the world. And like Israel, we've been instructed to reject all the false gods, all the idols of the culture around us. And the temptation that they faced to blend in, to make things easier for themselves, and just just blend in with the world around them and be absorbed into the idolatrous culture, is the same temptation that we as Christians often face today. We get uncomfortable with the idea of being persecuted, and yet Jesus did tell us, we should remember, that the world would hate us because they first hated Him. And and Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So why aren't all Christians persecuted and hated by the world? at least not as much as Christians are in many other places around the world. I'd say perhaps it's because we Christians in America simply blend in too much with the world around us. But this is exactly what Israel was doing at this point. They are blending in with the world around them. They are wanting to be just like the world. They wanted a king, but why? Why did they want a king? It was so that they could be like the world, so that they could be like the nations around them. Now, maybe they didn't consciously realize that they were blending in with the world by demanding a mortal king, but Samuel lays it out for them in very straightforward language here. And so upon being reminded of God's faithfulness to Israel throughout generations, the scene was set for for Israel to, to remember these things and to repent. I think it's at least possible that Samuel paused between verses 18 and 19 here just for a moment to give the Israelites a moment just to to think back, to consider and to, to reflect on God's faithfulness to them through all the years, through all the generations, and on the fact that the Lord had always been the one to help them up until this point. And perhaps when that pause was only met with silence and awkward stairs maybe then he proceeded but he begins with he begins uh, verse 19 with he says but you have rejected your god that's getting right to the chase but you have today rejected your god who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses the fact is that to this very day and until the end of time the desire for God's people to be like the world and to be ruled over in an ultimate sense by something or someone other than God is to reject God. There is no difference. And that is what makes political idolatry such a dangerous, dangerous thing. No 
mere man is worthy of our ultimate trust. No mere man is worthy of our ultimate loyalty or allegiance. No man can be our Savior or our Deliverer. God alone, God alone is worthy of our highest loyalty and allegiance. Now it's never, ever been easy for God's people to live in the world. And let me share my thoughts about that. It's very brief. I think God designed it that way. It's not easy by design. God has ordered everything in such a way that His people would be conformed to Christ's likeness. That's God's promise. That's how He has ordered all of creation. So why do we want an easy life? Why are we so tempted to take the easy way out if we trust that God's the one who has ordered all things? Do we think that an easy life will wean us from things like independence and self-reliance before God? Do we think that an easy life is going to break us off from our pride and humble us? No, that's not. those things aren't accomplished by an easy life at all. Can you imagine a soldier who decides to sit out on the hard days at boot camp? I mean, what, what benefit would boot camp be to him if he just took the easy way out every single time? One of the purposes of boot camp is to break a soldier down completely so that they can build him back up, rebuild him as a soldier. Because if they don't do that, He won't be able to do the difficult things that soldiers do. And you don't break a soldier down by taking it easy. No, you make it as hard as you possibly can, and then some, so that he's broken down. And likewise, it would be a whole lot easier for us as Christians to just blend in with the world. But what would that ultimately benefit us? Now, I get it. The way to not experience difficult times as a Christian, the way to avoid things like persecution and tribulation as a Christian is to just compromise with the world, keep your mouth shut, and just blend in. But Paul says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know what the assumption there is? The assumption is that God's people will desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I want that? Do you want that? Do you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? I I hope, I I pray that your answer is yes. I, I, I want everything that Christ Jesus has to offer. But if your answer is no, you're in deadly and dangerous territory. Richard Phillips says this in his commentary. He says that, quote, for Christians to turn aside from the tribulations that accompany godliness is to renounce Christ's power to overcome on our behalf, end quote. All I can say is, why would we ever do that? Friends, don't let that be said of you. It isn't worth it. It's never worth it. Some people will learn the hard way when it's too late. But the road that leads to life everlasting is not an easy road to travel. The grade is steep. 
There are thorns. There are uh, traps. There are all kinds of snares. No, it's not an easy road. But it's worth it. So Samuel has openly and publicly rebuked Israel for her idolatry, which is ultimately what it is. For her rejection of God, so that she could trade God in for a mortal man. And once Samuel does this, he instructs them to present themselves before the Lord by tribe and clan. Now, before we continue, we should look back and remember that the same had been instructed of Israel at another point in time in their history. In the book of Joshua, chapter 7, God had instructed the Israelites to take none of the spoils from the people of the land when God led them into victory against the people of the land. But a man named Achan disobeyed. And we read this in Joshua 7.1. It says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban, for Achan took some things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So apparently Achan had done this, and everyone knew it, and nobody said anything about it. Maybe some of them even decided to participate in doing the same thing. But the result of all of this was Israel being defeated by this tiny little town of Ai in battle. A-I, Ai. And so Joshua goes and he prays to the Lord for help, and God responds to him in verse 11 of chapter 7, saying, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, and they have taken some of the things under the ban, and they have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. That's what we read about in verses 11 and 12. So God's instructions for rooting out the evil would then be found in verses 14 and 15 where God says, in the morning you shall come near by your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the families which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. And so... Here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see the same thing happening. The people being called to line up by tribe and clan, and lots would be drawn as a means of singling out um, the person who would be king in this situation. The person in Joshua was the person upon whom God's wrath fell. So here in 1 Samuel, they, they have to see the similarities for the instructions that are given to them in this situation. So we read about the lots being cast in the verses that follow. Let's continue, verses 20 to 24. It says, Thus Samuel brought all the tribes to Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul the son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? 
So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. So the first lot that was cast fell on the tribe of Benjamin. Round two saw the lot fall on the Matrites. And then a household within the Matrite clan was to be identified. And finally, Saul would be the one who would have his name read out. Saul ben Kish, or Saul the son of Kish. Once again, we're reminded that there are absolutely and unequivocally no coincidences in God's universe. God is sovereign over all things, including who would be taking his place as Israel's king, and by the way, including who uh, our governing leaders are as well, by the way. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. If he works all things according to the counsel of his own will, then there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as chance. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. When we wrap our minds even a little bit around that, when, when we start to gain a little bit of an understanding of that, we see how silly it is for us to feel like we ever have ultimate control of anything at all. But in circumstances that were parallel to that time that Achan was publicly identified as the one who must represent all of Israel and receive an outpouring of God's wrath, Saul here is the one who is publicly identified as the one who would represent all of Israel as their king. Well, Saul was clearly expecting this to happen, which is really interesting because he's not a man of faith. And yet he goes and he hides himself in the baggage. So, so he was expecting this to happen, as he should have been, based on everything that he's seen for the last chapter and a half. And yet, because he knows this is going to happen, he hides. And this is terribly sad to see. He, he clearly had seen God's hand working, ordering all these events that took place. He had personally witnessed so many supernatural pieces of evidence of God's plan unfolding. He had actually every reason not to fear. He had every reason instead to be a man of faith, to be a man of courage and valor. But those words, courage, faith, valor, those words would never, ever describe Saul. We can imagine that as Samuel read out Saul's name, the whole place went completely silent. Saul, son of Kish, paging Saul, son of Kish. Has anybody seen Saul, son of Kish? Where, where is he? He's nowhere to be seen. Nobody knows where he is. And so when the people are unable to find him, uh, they go to the Lord to, to ask where he is. And the fact is, what we see here is that he could hide from the people pretty well. But he couldn't hide from God. God would tell Samuel, behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. In all honesty, by the way, if you, uh, if you demanded that I fill a role that involves replacing God, I'd go and hide too. Uh, but I don't think that's why Saul is hiding. 
Now, William Blake, he tries to assume in his commentary, he tries to assume the best about Saul. He writes this, he says, Saul shared the feeling that constrained Moses to shrink back when he was appointed to deliver Israel from Egypt, and that constrained Jeremiah to remonstrate when he was appointed a prophet unto the nations, end quote. Now, my only thought on that is I would be willing to consider that at least as a possibility. I'd be much more inclined to agree that he hid because of humility rather than uh, due to faithlessness if, if we didn't see this very same pattern of faithless, cowardly behavior throughout Saul's tenure as king. But look at what, what God has given to Israel. They wanted a king that would be like the kings of the other nations because they themselves wanted to be like the nations. And the reason they wanted to be like the other nations is because they were growing in faithlessness. They were apostates. And so God, who sometimes has kind of a sense of humor about these things, appoints a coward to fill the role of king. Now friends, throughout Scripture... To be cowardly really means to be lacking in faith. And, and maybe that's why cowards are the first ones mentioned in Revelation 21.8, which says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Who's the first one named? Cowards. So in Scripture, to be a coward is to be faithless. And Saul would prove himself to be a coward over and over and over again throughout his story. And so as, Saul, uh, as Samuel brings Saul before the people of Israel, all they can see is what he looks like. They see how tall he is. They see how handsome and, and charming he is. But they've also seen what a coward he is, right? Samuel says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? I think he probably said that with a little bit of a smirk on his face. He says, surely there is no one among him, uh, no one uh, like him among all the people. What's, what's Samuel saying there? It, it, does he mean that, that Saul is just taller and more handsome than anyone in Israel? Or is he pointing out that he's more cowardly than anyone in Israel? After all, nobody else is reported to have been hiding on that day. Well, I think that Samuel actually probably meant both. But the people are captivated by his appearance, by the way he, he looks externally. And so they begin shouting and chanting in response, Long live the king. Like Israel, it's so easy for us to get so swept up, so swept away by the way a person looks or presents himself. It's far too easy to overlook issues of character, issues of integrity, issues of faith. And we know this to be true, or we should, because we see that same thing happen every election cycle. Nevertheless, God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who ordains governments and leaders often as a just judgment against a nation. And friends, the fact that God is sovereign is exactly why we as Christians can be content regardless of who is in office. In fact, we can be content in every situation if we really believe 
that God is sovereign over all things. And not only that, but that He has ordered everything to work so that we might grow in Christ's likeness. Now God's going to do all the things that He has purposed and promised and covenanted to do, and nobody and no thing is going to get in His way. So why are we so easily swept away by appearances? Why is it so hard for us to find contentment when the person we don't like gets appointed to office? Well, Saul would be king. Our passage ends with a powerful reminder that the king never has more authority than God's word does. Let me say that again. The king, and whether we're talking about a king or a president, prime minister, governor, city council member, whatever, mayor, they never have more authority than God's word does. That was true here in our passage, and it's true now. It's actually why these final verses have been drawn from throughout the ages to support Christian disobedience from tyrannical governments. And so it's a reminder that no matter who leads a nation, God is still the sovereign king. He is indeed the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's continue verses 25 to 27. It says, Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. Let me say it again. No matter who leads a nation, God is still the sovereign king. No earthly king, no president, no governor, no prime minister, no city council member has the authority to contradict or to defy God. Or to pass laws that require that those over whom they govern defy God. When they do, that is called tyranny. It's when somebody tries to rise up above God. Kids, you guys know what the Tyrannosaurus Rex is, right? He's kind of the king. He's the biggest of the dinosaurs, right? He's the the meanest and the the chief dinosaur. That's kind of where the word comes from, Tyrannosaurus. He's a tyrant. He makes everybody uh, afraid and he exerts his own will. Uh, But with Saul established as king, the question would be, if he is the top dog in the land, whose rules are they all going to live by? Who gets to write the rules? What are the limits of Saul's authority as their leader? Samuel wanted to remind Saul that he did not, as now the king of Israel, he did not have God's permission to be a tyrant. He was to be an earthly king, but God is still the sovereign king of kings. Israel could have their beloved king, but even the king was under the authority of God's word. And this wouldn't only be true of Saul, it's actually true of every earthly leader and every authority, not just in government, but in the other spheres as well. Not only is he sovereign over kings, not only is he the top authority over kings, but also of men who are husbands or fathers, uh, men who serve as elders in the church. Church, 
family, government. These are the three spheres of authority that God has ordained. Every sphere of authority that God has ordained is limited by what God's Word says. Those serve as the boundaries of authority. Uh, God's Word does. So Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Saul's the one who was just appointed king, and Samuel is the one who tells the people how this system of monarchy, the system of having an earthly mortal king, was going to work. Where did he get these ordinances? Well, John Calvin's student Theodore Beza, as well as countless names since him, uh, believe that it came from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. Uh, This is what we read there in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17, verses 14 to 17. It says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, get the fact that God is expecting them to one day have that desire. Verse 15, he says, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never again return that way. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. In other words, the king was not to have all this privilege that allowed him to live this absolutely excessive, luxurious life. But the underlying point behind even that, behind all of this, is that the king is under the authority of God. God is still God. God is still sovereign. God is still the one who creates the laws, the rules. And so to that end, the king was supposed to know God's word. In the verses that we find after uh, after, uh, verse 17, we read that the king was, quote, to write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Now this is important for us to understand, especially since we live in a world with mortal kings and and presidents and prime ministers and governors who have been entrusted with power. The king was to know God's law. And to that end, he was supposed to handwrite a copy of the law on a scroll which would be kept with him at all times. And he was to do this in the presence of Levitical priests. Why do you think that is? So he wouldn't cheat. Because they knew the law. And if he were to omit just a couple words here and there, or add just a couple words here and there, they would know it, and he'd have to start over. So this scroll, he was supposed to handwrite himself, and he was supposed to keep it with him at all times. Verse 19 says, It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And verse 20 issues a promise of blessing and success and prosperity upon Israel if the king would just faithfully do this. Now this passage here in Deuteronomy 17 uh, and our text here in 1 Samuel, these have been some of the most important texts in all of Scripture pertaining to the relationship between church and state. 
for thousands and thousands of years. Samuel Rutherford, uh, you may recognize his name. He was a, a Protestant reformer whose classic work titled Lex Rex re, uh, relied heavily on this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now the, the words, the, the title Lex Rex means law of the king or law of the king's ship. And it was written to refute the notion of Rex Lex which would mean the king is the law, or the kingship is the law. Uh, as noted in the description of a modern annotated edition of the book, it says, quote, with Lex as the first word in the title, Rutherford was saying that the law precedes or comes before the king, thus the king must obey the law, end quote. And so we have to understand that no earthly leader has the authority to make laws or mandates that are contrary to the teachings of Scripture. Because Scripture is God's Word, and God is the highest authority. It actually makes perfect sense. This wasn't just something that we've discovered, that the church has discovered in the last three and a half years. This isn't the first time that the church has faced tyrannical overreach by the government. No, it's been a principle that has guided God's people ever since it was written. But look, I'm not here just to make the point that that kings and and monarchs and rulers, that they need to obey God's law. I'm also here to say that everyone should obey God's law, especially those who have been called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian, you should know that one of the uses of the law is to condemn. One of the uses of the law is to point us to Christ. One of the uses of the law is to teach us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, if you're a Christian, you, sh- you should know this. You should know that obedience is important, that, that we do want to, to, uh, to, to follow God's law, that it's a guideline. It's still a moral guideline for us. And yet we, thought, we saw thousands and thousands of pastors and churches uh, saying that we had the responsibility to just do whatever the governing authorities instruct. Just a couple years ago, when governing authorities were instructing churches to close or to not sing. Let me make it very simple for you. Does God instruct us to gather? Yes, He does. Then does anybody have the authority to say you cannot gather? Anybody have the authority to say you cannot gather? No. Uh, so closing down isn't an option for us. Does God instruct us to sing? A lot of times. Yes, over and over in his word, he instructs us to sing. So when the governor says, do not sing if you go to church, does he have the authority to say that? He doesn't, because God has already given us clear instructions. We have a duty to obey God and his law, his commandments, are ultimately what governs our lives. Did I say duty? Yeah. It is our duty. Is there a stronger word than that? I'll use that word. Uh, Maybe obligation. It's our obligation. Call it whatever you want. Our highest responsibility, friends, as Christians, is to love God and to obey His Word. No matter who leads a nation, God is still the sovereign king. He's still the ultimate authority. And nobody has the authority to contradict what he says. This is a principle that applies not only to our relationship with the government, by the way. It also applies to our relationships with family and in in churches as well. Husbands, 
You have a responsibility before God, a God-given responsibility to lead your families and to love your wives in a way that reflects the selfless, gracious, cherishing, exclusive covenant love with which Christ loves His bride, the church. Now, I'm not just saying that as a traditionalist. I'm not saying that because I'm, you know, conservative or whatever. If you know me, you know I don't care about traditions all that much, uh, at least not for the sake of just tradition's sake. No, this isn't about recognizing, uh, this is about recognizing the fact that God is the one that creates these boundaries. God is a God of order. And as such, He's given us these boundaries. He's given us these rules to govern every kind of relationship that we have. That includes relationships between us and the civil authorities, but it also includes relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and their children, between employees and employers, between pastors and church members, etc., God's Word sets the boundaries. God's Word governs these relationships. We don't just make up the rules as we go along. We yield ourselves to what God's Word instructs. Long live the King, the people shout and chant. But if they knew God's Word, and I'd say that's probably pretty questionable here at best when we consider their apostasy, but if they knew God's Word, they would have known that the throne wouldn't belong to the tribe of Benjamin indefinitely. If you look at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob prophesied that the scepter, that the the kingship, the rulership, uh, would ultimately belong forever to the tribe of Judah. And so the book of 1 Samuel is actually what tells us about how the tribe of Judah would end up on the throne. Of course, David would be from the tribe of Judah. But God would make a covenant with David that David's descendant would have an everlasting kingdom. He says to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, of course, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. David was just a a mere foreshadowing, a, a shadow, a type of Christ. Saul, on the other hand, he's not exactly a shadow of Christ. Saul is actually more of a contrast to Christ. Uh, Saul hid in the baggage because he was a faithless coward. Jesus instructed the recipients of his healing to tell no one about his power. But the reason that Jesus wanted to conceal his information wasn't because he was a faithless coward, but because his purpose in coming wasn't to be just a, a miracle worker or to be an earthly king. No, his main purpose in coming was to present himself as the once for all sacrifice for sin in the place of all who believe on him. Samuel would declare of Saul, surely there is no one like him among all the people. And while that was true in an outward sense, Saul was inwardly just as fallen and just as sinful as anyone else. Jesus, on the other hand, had nothing outwardly appealing about him, but inwardly he was the only man who would be innocent of sin in all of human history. But when it comes to Jesus, surely there is no one like him among all the people because... Nobody else is sinless. Nobody else has the righteousness that God requires of us. 
Nobody else can provide that righteousness for himself, never mind for others. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Saul's appointment as king was a picture of God's wrath against Israel's sin. Jesus came to deliver us from sin, from its penalty, from its power, and one day from its presence. If you have believed in Jesus, you have become a citizen of his kingdom. It's a kingdom that will never be shaken, a kingdom that will never come undone, a kingdom that will never be broken, a kingdom that takes priority and precedence over every other earthly kingdom. Friends, as Christians, we should be a people who are happy to yield ourselves to the authorities that God has placed over us in every sphere. Because our greatest allegiance is not to a flag, it's to a king. Our greatest allegiance is to him who has given us his word to live by. But nobody has the authority to tell us to do what God forbids or to forbid that we do what God instructs. And so may our hearts shout out and cry in unison, long live Christ our King, knowing that His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the way that it instructs us and guides us and helps us to understand the boundaries of these relationships that we have. Relationships not only to the governing authorities, but to our spouses, to our employers, uh, or to our employees. Lord, we thank you for the way that your word uh, sets the boundaries and the parameters of these things, that we may live within your boundaries and operate within them in a way that pleases you. Oh, Father, we pray that as we consider our own nation, that we would be a people who are happy to oblige and comply with the governing authorities insofar as they operate within their proverbial lane. But, oh God, give us the courage and the wisdom to defy when necessary. Oh Lord, we pray for the salvation of our governing officials from the president and the Supreme Court members down to city council mayors, city council people mayors, and things of of lowly positions that are just local and small. Father, we pray for their salvation, not only for the glory of Christ, that it would be a testimony of his greatness and of your power to save sinners like us, but also that they would govern wisely. Oh, Father, teach us to be content Whatever our circumstances may be, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be content knowing that you are the one who's sovereign over all things, and you have ordained everything that happens. Every leader that gets placed over us comes from your sovereign decree. And with that in mind, Lord, we pray that we would be a people who would be content to simply love you, love our neighbors and to obey your word for the glory of Christ. 
In whose name we pray. Amen.